Malolele, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Coming up. For the Pacific, it's always been climate change that was at the, a priority uh, security issue. Pacific elders say climate change is the real threat to the region, not China. To ensure that they give space for reporters to report freely without fear of fever. The Pacific Media Associations are urging their governments to respect and protect media freedom. Corruption is a major problem. When you're in a meeting, he said corruption is almost always in the room. And a new report from Transparency International finds a lack of capacity is hampering anti-corruption work in the Pacific. The Pacific Elders' Voice, a group of former leaders of Pacific Island nations, are raising their concerns about the growing influence of major powers in trying to influence the security priorities of the region. In a statement last week, informed by the recent debate around the Beijing-Honiara security deal, they warned the geostrategic battle between countries like China, the United States and its allies such as Australia does little to address the real threat to the region caused by climate change. The group says independent nations of the region must be able to determine by themselves their security and future. The former leaders warned Pacific Islanders are suffering from many insecurities in the region and that it was time that the international community focus on these insecurities, particularly in the context of climate change. Former Kiribati President Anote Tong, who is a member of the Pacific Elders' Voice, says climate change has always been a priority security issue for the region, but it has not received the attention it deserves. He spoke to RNZ Pacific regional correspondent Kelvin Anthony. The sixth assessment report came out at the end of February, and uh, there's been subsequent uh, parts of the report coming out. And also there's been this issue of the security issue that been, you know, with the Solomons, you know, with um, the China and the U.S. But I think what uh, we wanted to emphasize was that for the Pacific, it's always been climate change that was at the, a priority uh, security issue, which we felt had not really been given sufficient attention. There are increased interests and efforts from major players to develop strategies concerning the future security of the Pacific. Uh, but as the Pacific Elders Voice statement points out, you know these policies are determined with uh, little input from the Pacific uh, themselves. What are the consequences uh, of this? We must believe that we're a partner in, in these discussions. After all, they do impact on us very, very directly. Whether whether or not we have any real significant input, I think we need to be a party to the process. And I think um, it's, it's a bit interesting that all of the security discussions are going on around us, but not with us. And I think we that is the question we are raising. You know, should we not be part of the discussions in, in any way? Why do you think that this always happens where the, the bigger development you know, partners appear to be, you know, a bit more forceful in terms of their their intentions for the region. It happens for two reasons. Uh, I think the first reason is we're not we're never really taken seriously in terms of uh, world. The global affairs, particularly where they involve the, the, the bigger countries, all right? And secondly, we do not come in. We, we, we must take the blame for not stepping in. And I think this is what we're trying to do. Make that voice be heard that we, we, we must step in and be part of the discussion rather than be, be in the periphery, periphery of the discussions. Now, one thing that is becoming evident is that the issue of uh, climate security comes uh, at second best when regional public debate is heavily uh, focused on the geostrategic or military 
military tensions in the region. How can Pacific leaders make sure that uh, they don't lose sight of the threat, which is uh, climate security? Well, let me give you an example. Over the decades, we have we've been uh, shouting to the international community, trying to uh, for our voice to be heard on the on the urgency of the climate challenge and how serious it will be for us, if not already. But I don't think we have been heard, and so because I I suspect that there are countries who do not believe that uh, climate change is as relevant to them as the their own uh, rivalries in terms of between the, the powers that they deal with. And so I think it is important to make that point that here we are, part, we are part of the discussion and that whatever we do with other partners, we impinges on, we, it's regarded as impinging on the wider security issues of the region. But that all this while we've been screaming that climate change for us is, the, is, is of the highest priority because our very future existence is at stake here. Now that just brings us to the point about Australia, that Pacific Elders Voice statement mentioned. So, so Australia has been referred to more than once in, in that statement due to its uh, lack of climate leadership. Australia internationally has been la- labelled as a climate laggard, one of the climate laggards. Is it one of the reasons why uh, Australia is now viewed as losing influence over the small Pacific Island neighbours? Is that the thinking of the Pacific Elders' voice? It is no secret that uh, we have been trying as much as possible to communicate our concerns to Australia. We're part of Australia, professes to be part of the Pacific family. We need the members of the, the member of the family who has mo- the most to contribute to step forward. I mean, um, we are understand that uh, not straightforward but um, we've always been looking for leadership from countries like Australia and New Zealand from our part of the world who understand our situations better than anybody else but that leadership has, has always been lacking over all of this time and so that certainly has been a disappointment and I think uh, I for one have, all, have always been saying that perhaps too much but I think it needs to be said that's exactly the point that we are making in that statement because it's so important to us we cannot remain silent. Finally, what does it take for a country like Australia to, quote, undertake credible and urgent actions on climate change? It's not, it's not me attacking Australia. It's, I'm just uh, deeply concerned about the lack of action. Well, we know that Australia has a greater voice than we do in international affairs. There was a time when we actually voted Australia in, onto the Security Council as a specific group for the reason that we wanted Australia to, to push the climate issue as a security issue in the, in, the, in the United Nations Security Council. It did not happen. And so that was a, a huge disappointment. And so that kind of attitude has, has remained and we continue to look for a change in attitude because as expressed in the, in the statement for us, the climate change is is the highest security threat that we face. And it's not, it's no longer by the end of the century, it is within the next couple of decades or so. The Pacific Freedom Forum is urging governments and leaders in the region to respect and uphold media freedom. Journalism under siege is the theme of Media Freedom Day this year, which falls on the 3rd of May. It's in recognition of many digital threats media workers are faced with daily. The chair of the Pacific Freedom Forum, Robert Iroga, says there are states of public emergency because of COVID which some Pacific governments are using to limit the ability of journalists to report freely. He says it's important to allow journalists to do their job freely without fear or favour. To ensure that they give space for freedom for reporters to report freely without fear or favour across the region or even without the threat or intimidation. Because free press is a key component of any democracy, and any moves to sabotage our freedom, I must deplore that. Georgina Kikea is the president of the Media Association of Solomon Islands, or MASI. 
Ms Gekea has been a journalist for over 20 years and says the big challenge for reporters in Solomon Islands is getting access to relevant government officials to verify the wealth of stories being leaked by whistleblowers on social media. And, you know, with social media, you tend to see uh, breaking news coming out on social media platforms. And as journalists, you want to, you know, as soon as you see information, you need to verify those information and you need to have access to people who will be able to speak. Uh, But that seems to be the challenge for us now. The president of the Palau Media Council says freedom of information is essential to the function of a fair and free society. Leilani Reklai says World Press Freedom Day is an opportunity to also highlight smaller newsrooms in places like Palau. Very, very important because it helped to highlight the need for independent media. It highlights the need for us to be um, stronger and to be independent from the government and from other organizations so that we could report the information that is important to the public. For the Journalists Association of Western Samoa, JAWS, its president, Lani Keresoma, says World Press Freedom Day means a lot, especially in an island where culture and tradition are very strong. She says in last year's general election, journalists were banned from attending several villages or district gatherings. Langi has been reporting on Samoa and American Samoa for over 40 years and says it's become harder over the years to get information out of governments. She says the Samoan public has come a long way in accepting freedom of expression or free press, even though it has always been enshrined in the constitution. The belief that freedom of expression is not part of the Samoan culture makes it harder for journalists to carry out their work, especially in villages and districts. That statement from Langi Kerasoma. RNZ Pacific's correspondent in American Samoa, Monica Miller, says candidates will campaign on accountability and transparency, but once elected, it becomes very difficult to obtain information from them. She says there are examples of media being used by governments, which then leads to people not trusting some media organisations. And they identify this newspaper or this radio station as pro-government or anti-government. But really, you know, if we're doing our jobs right, they'll just see us as that uh, watchdog that um, is supposed to really expose the truth. The Pacific Islands News Association, PINA, in a statement, says increasingly in the Pacific, they are seeing more women journalists being attacked, vilified and harassed online by members of the public. PINA is urging social media platforms and police services to take strong steps to prevent and eliminate online attacks, campaigns of harassment, intimidation and violations of privacy against journalists. A new report from Transparency International New Zealand has detailed the extent of corruption and money laundering in the Pacific and what it thinks should be done about it. The report is called Corruption and Money Laundering in the Pacific, Intertwined Challenges and Interlinked Responses. One of the report's writers, law professor John Hopkins, says Pacific Island countries struggle to deal with corrupt practices, often because of a lack of capacity. He spoke with Don Wiseman, who began by asking how bad corruption is in the region. That's a difficult question to answer, actually. There's, there's a lack of statistics and a lack of research on Pacific corruption, so the details are difficult to, to talk about. But I think it's fair to say you may have seen from the, the Transparency International 
Pacific Barometer report recently that uh, corruption is a major problem. It, it varies. The nature varies on uh, state to state. Uh, but a colleague of mine who works uh, heavily in the field was always apt to say that when you're in a meeting, particularly in his, he was working in PNG, he said corruption is almost always in the room. What sort of corruption are we talking about? It's a good question. I think that there are different varieties of corruption. In this report, um, it should be clear, is, is very much looking at a particular aspect. It's looking at the in- interaction between corruption and uh, money laundering, uh, which is a particular nexus. But to return to your question, there's two issues that we we looked at in the report, two types of states. You've got states where they are blessed with significant um, resources, but unfortunately there are clearly uh, corruption involved in the uh, exploitation of those resources and a lot of that corruption, those corrupt um, activities, the money then transfers overseas. So good examples of those, and again that's reflected in recent work by Transparency International, would be in Papua New Guinea and the Solomon Islands. In other cases, you've got examples where there appears to be others, certainly um, evidence that you're getting money laundering flows coming into the, uh, states from outside those states and then being um, being laundered in the state and then um, going elsewhere. So there's two types of certainly this this corruption money laundering, uh, which is what we're talking about in the report. Uh, more widely, of course, as well as those uh, corruption activities going on, you've got um, issues around favours and um, uh, influence uh, rather than the monetary corruption, which of course is a is another another issue in itself. In terms of money laundering, wouldn't that be pretty difficult in a tiny economy? And a lot of them are in the Pacific. Yeah, so that's a very good point. We, like we've seen that there's there's two types of money laundering that goes on. Firstly, when you're talking about some states, these are not small uh, amounts of money. So Papua New Guinea, for example, um, and and other states such as uh, our territories, such as New Caledonia, which we didn't look at, but these have significant amount of flows within them because of their. Uh, resource um, rich they, you know these countries are resource rich so there's a lot of money there and the issue in those countries is corrupt activities the money laundering occurs as a means it's necessary to get the resources if they've been obtained corruptly and then cleaning it so they can be used by those who've undertaken those activities so that's one aspect we shouldn't underestimate the amount of money we're talking about there in terms of money laundering in term which i think is what you mean in terms of uh, transnational flows so-called so money from outside the region and then being laundered within the region. There's clearly less of that going on, but there, of course, are countries which um, operate as financial centres. I mean, New Zealand is one as well. But, for example, the Cook Islands, Vanuatu and uh, Samoa all promote themselves with these sort of facilities. Vanuatu has a long history of doing this. So to give a positive spin in the past, Vanuatu has, of course, been um, significantly criticised for its activities in, in, in the sector and its secrecy. And in fact, was well, it still is, I believe, on the EU's um, uh, blacklist. I'll have to check that. It has cleaned up its act somewhat recently. But those countries um, certainly have the, the potential to, to, to undertake uh, money laundering. And, and given that Fiji is also recognised, it also has a significant financial sector, and it's recognised by the EU as um, being a non-cooperative state, and it's on its list of non-cooperative states, then um, again, you can see that there's a recognised problem with some of these states, even though their economies, as you say, are pretty small. In this new report from Transparency International, there have been a number of recommendations made. A number of these states already have mechanisms in place Mm -hmm. to try and stop this, don't they? So what's going wrong there? So, yeah, I think that's that's the key point. So one of the things we wanted to look at was look at the formal regime, whether that needed to be 
strengthened or, or changed to address some of these issues or, or whether it's something else. So in all the states that we looked at, we looked at seven in total, which to give a sort of overview of different types of Pacific economy and Pacific states. And our general view is that, as you've just mentioned, most of them have pretty good legal frameworks in, in the main. You know, there's some variance, uh, some could do with some improvement. But in the main, the legal tools uh, to deal with these issues are there. So that would suggest that that's not the issue. Uh, the one thing that we, I think, was recognized, that we recognized across a number of these states was a lack of capacity. Uh, in the prosecuting authorities, where, for example, the financial intelligence units, which exist in many of these states, didn't have the capacity to to utilise or provide the reports and information to the police or the other prosecuting authorities to to follow up. There wasn't evidence of a lot of um, prosecutions, for example. So capacity is something that clearly needs to be improved. Greater cooperation across the region to ensure that those who are undertaking particularly money laundering activities in one state can be traced to another state, again, often linked to corruption. So it's in the interest of big metropolitan states to support that. My own view in the past has been that the state, the bigger states, Australia and New Zealand, have tended to be more concerned with international money laundering than with domestic corruption turning into money laundering. But both of these issues should be something that these states um, uh, address. So they, th- those are some of the, the sort of over overall recommendations that we would like to see. How do you make it happen? There's an issue. We have to recognise that a number of these states have got capacity issues in terms of size and training and, and resources. So larger states or, or states with resources have to step up, I think, and assist them. But I think and we have to be careful. There's been a tendency in the past, I think, for the, the Western states to, to use a probably not the best term, but to to develop states to somewhat apply what they want in the to the Pacific states. The Pacific states, I think, have to be the ones to to deal with this. So they can be given support, but it has to come from them. I don't think it's a question of just training them in the ways of New Zealand or Australia or uh, or elsewhere. There's got to be got to be domestic buy-in from the states to so that that these rules will apply in a domestic context. Because the Pacific cultures, of course, are fundamentally different from, for example, uh, New Zealand when I'm speaking from at the moment. That brings us to the end of Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Mong me up.